suffers we're all suffering when one of us strays into a way of living that dishonors the Lord all of our witness goes with you and so we always want to say Lord help me to think bigger than just my own feelings Lord help me to think bigger than just the temptations I have help me to think about what this means for the community the people of God what this means for my family of faith As much as you might like to believe otherwise, your decisions have a ripple effect. The choices you make ripple out into the community around you. Today, Pastor Daniel encourages you to keep this truth in mind as you walk through life. You're not an island. What you do matters. Not only will you have to deal with the results of your choices, but so does everyone else. He urges you to think about this so your ripples don't capsize others. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Deuteronomy chapter 24 as he begins his message, More Random Laws. All right, let's open up in those Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24 as we continue our study here in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, You notice that I've entitled this message, More Random Laws. And so remember, we've had a number of these chapters in the book of Deuteronomy where it's almost like a junk drawer of laws. I thought about calling this message Checks Mix, because you know, you got Checks Mix, you got all these different flavors, it's all just thrown in the bag together. And in some ways, you know, in the second telling of the law, you have these sections where there isn't a lot of kind of rational continuity to the laws, but they all need to get in there, and so they just kind of throw them all together. And so we're going to be looking at a lot of different ideas. Let's jump right on in. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, When she is departed, verse 2, from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her out as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So we jump right into Deuteronomy 24 and we start looking at the idea of divorce. Now, if you've been traveling with us in our Real Talk series, this is actually the text that the Pharisees quote to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, asking him about divorce. But if you notice in these four verses that I read, these verses aren't really about divorce. It's actually about protection for women if a woman is divorced, then what should happen? So it's always so important because when you read Matthew 19, in the context of Deuteronomy 24, you begin to ask yourself, so why are the Pharisees talking about this being a proof text for divorce 
when really this is about something totally different. And it's an important reminder that when you take a text out of its context, what do you have left? A con. That's pretty good, right? Context. You take text out of it, what do you have left? You have a con. So we want to always read the scriptures in context and get the meaning of the scriptures from the context. And we find that the Pharisees, in the case of Matthew 19, where this first verse is quoted, we find that they're actually taking the scripture out of context to talk about something that actually the text isn't necessarily talking about. Now, to get into what it actually says here, it says first in verse one, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Now, I think the first thing is you have to realize that in the culture that Moses is writing into, men could ask for divorces, but women couldn't. Now, I'm not saying it's right, but this is the way the culture worked some 4,000 years ago, where men were, had the responsibility and the ability to do it, and women did not have that ability. Again, I'm not saying it's right, but as I always like to say in the Bible, that narrative is not normative. They're just reporting what it is. And in that culture, men could uh, seek divorce, women could not. But the key here is that because a man, he found some sort of uncleanness in her, some sort of indecency. And you can imagine with a phrase like that, the question always becomes, well, what is some sort of uncleanness or indecency? And if you heard that message on finding the heart of marriage from Matthew 19, I made the point that there was really, in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought. One was a more conservative way of thinking. The other was a more kind of, you could say, a liberal way of thinking. The conservative school was led by a rabbi named Shimei, who literally was very stringent, who said, no, uncleanness would only be sexual immorality. If a wife strayed in her marriage, that would be considered an indecency or an uncleanness, and then divorce was okay. And then there was another rabbi, his name was Hillel, who kind of led up the other school, the more liberal-minded school, where he said that really anything that you find that is unclean in her is fine. So if maybe you didn't like the way she cooked, or you found someone who was prettier than her or whatever, then at that point... So the problem, of course, you have is that when men have the power to divorce and they make the rules, you have all sorts of oppression that goes on for women. That's what you find. And in this context, that was something that was normal. And when they asked Jesus about it, we found that Jesus was way more conservative than Shimei because he pretty much said, listen, that marriage is rooted in creation and it's one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one whole life. And that's God's heart and that's God's desire. But when a woman gets put out from the home of her husband in divorce, notice it says, and when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, so now we have a woman who's been divorced who now gets remarried. It says if that husband either detests her and divorces her, or if he dies, she's not allowed to go back to her first husband. Why? Because first, God wants to make sure, the Lord wants to make sure that marriage is not whimsical or frivolous. See, all through the scriptures, the idea of one man and one woman becoming one flesh is very serious. And I think when you have a culture like ours where everything seems disposable, people kind of go into marriage with this idea, well, we'll just see how it works. And if it works good, then we'll stay together. And if it doesn't work good, then we'll get divorced. I mean, you know, now you can get a divorce. You file a couple papers, you spend like a hundred bucks and everything can be separated. But that misses God's heart for it. And I think for us here today, I think that it's important for us to realize that marriage is a holy institution. 
It's serious business, and we don't want to take it lightly. Our culture may take it lightly, but as followers of Jesus, we don't take it lightly. Because what God does join together, let no man separate. That's what Jesus said. And so it's super important for us to make sure we have the view of these things that God has. Does that make sense? Now, I realize that some of you will say, well, so, okay, so I've been divorced. Oh, what does this mean for me? Listen, don't forget there's grace for you. Listen, wherever you stand right now, We have grace for our past. We have God's forgiveness. When we repent and turn to Jesus, we have God's forgiveness for our past. And we trust in him for our present. We hope in him for our future. But it's so important for us to make sure that in the decisions that are ahead of us, we see things through the lens of scripture, through the heart of God, through the things that God cares about. And when we read things like this, we realize that God cares very much. And so here we have this idea in verse 4, The former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. Now, the woman's defiling comes from being married to another man. And so in a lot of ways, this is a prohibition against wife swapping. And I know it sounds crazy, like, I can't believe you would say that in church. But in a patriarchal culture, don't think this wasn't something that was going on in all the surrounding cultures around the children of Israel. Where when the men could make the decisions, it's like, well, listen, I'm not really too into her anymore, so I'm just going to get rid of her. And she goes, well, you can come on back. And you know what I mean? And for women, it puts them in a very compromised and vulnerable situation. And we've seen this all through the Bible, haven't we? That things that seem one way, when you start to put it into the context of the culture, you begin to realize that, no, God cares about men and women. And God is looking to make sure that his kids are safe and protected. Does that make sense? So it's really, really important that we see that. Now, I think it's also important at the end of verse four, there's something that we need to see here because he says, for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You have to realize that the sins of an individual impact an entire community. And that's something we see all through the scriptures that we live in a day and age because 21st century American culture is deeply individualistic. We have this tendency to think, well, look, it's not your problem, it's my life. But none of us live in a vacuum, so to speak. Everything that we do impacts other people. And so the sins of an individual actually impacts the entire community. And this is not only true for us as a nation or as a community, it also is about us as a church. Because the Bible says when one of us weeps, we all weep. When one of us exalted, we're all exalted. And so we rise and fall in Christ individually, but we also exist collectively. And for the children of Israel, everything was seen as just bigger as an individual's decision. Everything is always seen, this is how it impacts how we bring glory to God and who we are as a people, our collective witness. And I think oftentimes, I wish we could go back to that kind of a mindset. Like there was a time when people wouldn't do things for fear of how it would impact the good reputation of a family. Now people are like, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do. It's not your problem. But realistically, biblically, it is. And oftentimes, if we might do something in our own decision making, when we begin to think of the larger consequences of what does this actually mean for the witness of the church? What does this mean for the blessings of my community? See, when we start thinking larger than our individual wants and desires and temptations, 
that becomes a very strong checking mechanism for us against the work of the flesh. And if you've been traveling with us through the Mosaic law from Exodus till now towards the end of Deuteronomy, don't we keep hearing this? That this defiles the land, it's an abomination of the Lord, it causes issues for the community. We keep hearing it, but oftentimes I don't think it really registers for us given our kind of cultural lenses that we've all been raised in, that we live in. But it is true, isn't it? When one of us suffers, we're all suffering. When one of us strays into a way of living that dishonors the Lord, all of our witness goes with you. And so we always want to say, Lord, help me to think bigger than just my own feelings. Lord, help me to think bigger than just the temptations I have. Help me to think about what this means for the community, the people of God, what this means for my family of faith. So from there, we move into verse five. Look at what it says. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now, this is a law for newlyweds. What it means is that when you get newly married, guess what? You get a year's vacation. Really, actually, it's not a year's vacation. It's a new full-time job trying to bring happiness to your wife. That's what it says. And I'm here to tell you, that's some hard work, amen? No, I'm just kidding. Well, it is hard work. It's good work. When you start thinking about this, you start realizing that God cares about marriage. So in some ways, it's like God says, I don't want you to get divorced, and I don't want you to wife swap, but when you get married, I want you to lay a good foundation. And that's one of the things that I always like to tell young couples who are getting married. I always say, listen, when you get married, lay a strong foundation. Because you end up building your entire marriage on the foundation that is laid in your pre-marriage and your premarital time and in those first years of marriage. How do you communicate? Do you understand each other? Do you understand what makes each other tick and ticks each other off? You know, these are all very important pieces of information in the course of marriage. And so God's design is, listen, I don't want you to go to war. Why? Because you might get dead and that wouldn't help your wife. You know, and I don't want you to get yourself involved in any kind of significant business or be charged with business. Why? Because your one focus is to lay a good foundation. Now, why would God place a priority on the first year of marriage above war or business? Why? Because God knows that family is the central discipling unit of the people of God. That strong marriages will raise strong kids. Strong marriages and strong kids will build strong community. And a strong community will follow hard after Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are saying right now. Those of you who are thinking about getting married, you're like, okay, got it. Those of you who've been married, you say, maybe I didn't do such a good job in this. Now, listen, it's always a good time to go back and refortify the foundation of your family. There's never not a good time to stop, take a step back and say, I'm going to invest again in working on my family and my marriage. For those of you who are husbands here today, let me speak to the husbands as a husband. What I have learned is that any investment I choose to make in my bride is always welcome. Every time I grab her hand and say, sweetie, let's pray, she never says, well, I don't want to pray with you. She says, oh, yeah, okay. Every time I want to talk about Jesus, when I say, hey, let's read a book about marriage, she gets all in love. It's an amazing thing. 
I don't even have to read the book with her. I just have to bring it up. Like, hey, let's read that book about marriage. And she gets all, like, I'm the most handsome guy she ever saw in her life. There's a people joke that a happy wife equals a happy life. And in some ways, this verse lends itself to that. Because, I mean, the Bible also says, and to look at both sides of the coin, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. That's what it says. Proverbs 21, 9, better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman, Proverbs 21, 19. But here's the thing. If you take those verses and you link them to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, when a husband loves his wife, he actually loves himself because you're one flesh. So husbands, make that investment in your wife. Now, I know what's going on. Some of you guys right now are like, darn, I wish I didn't come to church tonight. Because your wife's sitting there, she's kind of like tapping her foot, you know, just being like, I, I know you're here in Fusco right now. But here's the deal for you guys, because I know some of us are like, so what do I do? If you don't know what to do, ask your wife what she wants you to do. I'm not kidding. If you just say to her, hey, listen, so Fusco was talking to us about making an investment and relaying the foundation of our marriage and refortifying our marriage. What do you think we need to do? I'm here to tell you, your wife will already have the prescription. Because she'll say, well, this is what my heart has always wanted. My heart has always wanted you to pray with me. My heart has always wanted you to make a commitment to grow together. And yeah, I really like to go to marriage ministry when it happens. And, you know, I really would like to serve the Lord. And, you know, maybe we should do this thing and that thing. So I think it's important that we always make the effort to relay the foundations. And if maybe you weren't in this place, you know, that you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to relay the foundation. Now, for those of you who are single right now and you're saying, okay, Fusco, move on, I'm bored, this is what I'm going to say. You want to hear this because if you desire a spouse one day, you want to know this stuff before you get there so it'll pop in your head that you need to lay a strong foundation and make sure you lay a good, strong foundation, right? If you're like, well, I'm never going to get married, forget that, then you need to pray for everybody who's trying to lay a strong foundation because it's hard to do. Because you have two personalities and two feelings and two histories and two families of origin who are coming together. But it's something that God cares deeply about. So I think it's beautiful. Make sure that we lay great foundations. Now, in verse 6, we get another one. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. Now, a millstone is what ground the grain, which was a basic life sustenance. So you have to think, like, right now, if you want some bread, you just go to the store and you pick up your favorite loaf of bread or you go to your favorite bakery or whatever, you just get some bread, right? But back in the day, this was long before we had Safeway and Fred Meyers and Costco and gluten-free bread and all this stuff. You had to pick the grain and you had to grind it down. You had to separate the wheat from the chaff and then you had to process it and bake it. And so the device that was used was a millstone. And the millstone, it was both an upper and a lower millstone. They were ground together. And really what it's saying here is that if a plant was a deposit, a down payment, let's say you want to go and you want to mow your field, right? You go and you rent and you give a deposit, right? In some ways, people would use their millstone as a deposit. But the Lord is saying, no, you can't use it. Why? Because in receiving it as a pledge, you actually deprive somebody of their ability to have daily bread. 
the basic sustenance of life. So really what this principle teaches us is that in the deposits that we make for things, as people who are lending, we should never put somebody in a vulnerable situation as we ask them for leverage for whatever they're borrowing from us. Does that make sense? So the way that we would want to apply this to our lives is that if you, maybe you have something that somebody needs help with and you want to loan it to them, but you want something kind of as collateral deposit, make sure you're not depriving them of their sustenance. Now, I think one of the ways that this plays out today is we do live in what many sociologists and economists, people who do the economy, we do live in a day and age of what you can call a predatory economy, which the economy is actually driven by causing people who are disadvantaged further disadvantage by the way that we deal with business. Like if you've ever been to a check cashing place. Now, I've never gotten my check cash at a check cashing place, but when you go, because I, I was reading about this, so I went into a check cashing place. You'll, you'll only find check cashing places in places that have higher percentages of lower income people. And when you go on in there, they charge exorbitant charges in order to cash your check because they realize you don't have a bank account and there is some credit risk for the person who's cashing the check, but they charge 30, 40, 50% just to cash your check. That's a predatory economy. You're taking someone who's impoverished and you're using their poverty against them to keep them oppressed. And that is something that's completely distinct from the purposes and plans of God. So it's amazing though when you see this that there are, you know, even the same thing like when you, if you want to buy a house. Now I get there's credit risks and all these things and, and a lender takes risk, but the higher, exorbitantly higher interest rates and fees that they pay for people who have lower income, again, it's speaking into this principle. Now you might say, well, so Pastor Daniel, I can't fix the economic system. Well, maybe you can. See, it's easy to throw our hands in the air and it's much more Jesus-like to say, well, Lord, is there something I can do? Is there a way that I can engage in this to help people on the margins, the people who are the most vulnerable, can I help them blossom? Is there something that I can do? Because it's really easy to say, well, I have no control over that stuff, but maybe we do. Something to think about. But it's really important. Don't deprive somebody of their livelihood, their ability to have the basic sustenances of life as you're trying to help them. Now in verse seven, notice we get next. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. So now we find that the punishment for kidnapping somebody is the death penalty. Now if you wanna marry this to another set of scripture, if you look at Exodus chapter 21, we find that all sorts of kidnapping according to the law of God is punishable by death. Jesus is real. Once again, God's heart for social justice came across loud and clear in today's study. As Pastor Daniel unpacked a few more of the laws that God gave the Israelites, you saw how he wanted to protect vulnerable people. The laws about marriage helped protect women. Then the guidelines for lending were there to prevent those in need from being taken advantage of further. Pastor Daniel urged you to ask God how you can get behind his heart for people and make a difference in your community. 
Hey everybody, I want to invite you to join me in reaching people with the message that Jesus is real. Would you pray about partnering with us in the ministry of Jesus is Real Radio? Your support in this way helps us to keep sharing God's word and helps us reach more and more people. Thank you for considering partnering. Find out more at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will share more about these blueprints for life that God gave to his people. You'll learn that what is called slavery in the Bible is actually more like a job in most cases. Pastor Daniel will help you unpack this weighty issue and help you to see that God wants people to be physically and spiritually free. There's more to come from Pastor Daniel's series called Blueprints. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus Is Real Radio.